What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Write Who You Know. This is the screenwriting podcast. That's the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. I'm Matt Hausfetter. Today, we have another amazing episode for you, but I'm going to get into that in a second. It is uh, currently Tuesday, May 23rd. Uh, we are in week four of the writer's strike. And uh, I got to be honest, uh, I'm finding it a little harder to find the motivation every single day to get out there and pick it and chant and uh, r- rally in solidarity with my guild uh, brothers and sisters. It's a lot. And uh, I knew that the fun would wane eventually, but uh, I didn't think it would come this soon. Um you know, but it is what it is. And it's a very important fight. And I'm glad that we're doing it because uh, we need protections and we need, you know, more pay. And we got to get we got to get our residuals now that the streaming model has sort of taken over the traditional television model. Uh, And uh, today is actually very special because I know as much as this is a screenwriting podcast. Today, I have my dear friend and uh, former Amazon studio exec turned uh, television producer, Steve Prinz on the podcast. He is a producer slash, like I said, former executive, and he's going to be sort of giving us his 30,000 foot view of the industry from the other side of the desk. Steve has produced shows like Them and Swarm and Paper Girls. He has worked uh, at Paramount Pictures, at Amazon Studios, at Red Hour Productions, which is Ben Stiller's production company, and he has an incredible insight uh, into the business, and it's uh, a great time. So grab your joints, your bongs, your uh, wines, your champagnes, your martinis, your bourbon tumblers, and uh, fire one up and toss one back because we have another searing hot episode of the best Hollywood podcast in existence on Right Who You Know. Pass. It's a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us and get some bigger attachments. Tell them right what you know. No, tell them right who you know. Oh, look at the slate over here on my left. Was there already a miscongeniality too? Yeah. <laughs> there was. <laughs> and the uh, ones with checks on them are set up. Oh, I like the red checks. There's multiple red checks. I know. Uh, you know, I sold the show to Netflix as a producer like th- a week before the strike. I know. I felt challenged. You did? I felt challenged. What? To like try and set something up? No, I just felt like, you know, you were encroaching in my territory and, and I had oh, to- Oh, because like, I'm producing? <laughs> did you did you set something else up? <laughs> I mean, I set everything I make up. I know. Well, yeah. after seeing the Swarm premiere where you were just glad handing the town, <laughs> I was like, shit, I guess- I got to get another animated show that will pay me nothing set up. (laughs) I could use a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. But they did give me some upfront development fee, which was nice. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's a good deal. Split three ways minus 25% for the Jews. Most, most corporations are not into upfront cash for, for ideas. I know. They just like to control them and they'll pay you later. I know. I know. Is that how you do it? Or you did it? It's interesting because. You speak from a studio perspective, even though now you're an independent producer. Yes. Well, it's because I worked at a studio for many years. I've, you- I almost, I've actually only worked at uh, studios. The, the company that I have now is the first time I've ever worked inside a production company apparatus. And it is your own apparatus that you are running. Yeah, which is a very strange experience. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, it's very different than being an executive, but it's also the exact same thing as any job in Hollywood. So, 
are you enjoy are you enjoying the producing experience or do you miss being on the buying side where you you know everyone respects you and kisses your ass and takes you to yeah. lunch and you know yeah it's it's really both uh i enjoy the experience of being closer to the actual physical construction of the thing that you're making mm-hmm. which is where all the passion inspiration comes from but i do miss the power that comes with just the general executive like profession the various like the ability to yes and no but also the corporate infrastructure as an executive gives you a crutch because the buck stops with you depending on what role you play in the environment um and that's a really like wonderful thing for your life and lifestyle um, whereas a producer, you don't have a crutch. Yeah. You always on, you have to do it. There's no, there's no evading or, or resting. And that's exhausting. Do you find, uh, and just for spe- specificity, are you, is your deal with Amazon? Or are you completely independent of Amazon at this juncture? No, no, no. I have a exclusive television deal with Amazon. Meaning you can only develop TV for them. That's correct. They yeah. don't have, but like, for example, if they pass, you can't go elsewhere. It's not a first right of refusal. It's a. Yeah, but it's also, I think given, I have a specific situation there because of my tenure. Yeah. Um, uh, Professor so- Steve with tenure <laughs> at Amazon Studios. Uh, so if, if there's something in conflict in the sense of something that is just genuinely not going to work for them, but is going to have obvious legs at another place, there's a conversation that can be had. But at this moment, I haven't really had the necessity for that. So, yeah. I have to make my television shows at Amazon. Should we let's you know before we dive into all your shows sure. and your success? Should we should we go backwards a little bit? You know that's always the fun place. That's where all the stories are. That is the fun place. Do you <laughs> want to before we get into where we met, etc.? Why don't you give us a little background on you? Where did you grow up? Okay. And where did you go to college? Sort of just give me a little bit yeah. on Young Prince and what made you want to be a writer and okay and sort of or not. I'm sorry, you're not a writer. What made you want to work? No, but in I the did business? want to write. So that's I guess right. That's, that's, that's right. Fine. I forgot about that. Um. Uh, so I'm from San Diego, California. Are you? Sick. You're a gaucho, uh, and I'm a full-on gaucho, like Eric Roth. Uh, yep, Eric Roth, <laughs> Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot of others. Uh, uh, yeah, I grew up in San Diego, film nerd, cinephile. Uh, I went to school in Santa Barbara because that's where all my friends were going, and it was just like San Diego. Uh, and I studied film and theater uh, at UCSB. Uh, and, and I don't know how much depth you sort of want me to go into, but it's like, uh, my transition was just having a ton of internships from which I would drive to Los Angeles during college, during college. Um, but I was actually there, uh, weirdly enough. Um, I shouldn't say I was there, but half my time there, I was on a screenwriting scholarship because I had wanted to be a writer, or at least I thought I wanted to be a writer. And so I ventured into it and was able to win a, a screenwriting scholarship that Scott Frank put on. Um, and while I was doing that, I was driving back and forth every night uh, between Santa Barbara and L.A. to work for free in a bunch of old school Hollywood production companies. Was that when you were working at Red Hour or was that before uh, Red Hour? That was before Red Hour. Red Hour was when I had actually already moved to L.A., had stopped writing, had started working at Nordstrom's at The Grove, And uh, my last ditch effort into kind of like the entertainment business was to lie about still being in college to get an internship at Red Hour, even though I was really working down the street 
selling men's suits and women's shoes. You know, I feel like that that speaks to what we all have to do at some time, which is the uh, what I call lie, cheat, swindle, deceit, which is like the David Geffen method of like, yeah, I graduated UCLA. And by the time you figure it out, I'm going to be so indispensable (laughs) to this company, you're not going to give a fuck. So I applaud you for that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a basic nature of Hollywood, which is like you either provide or you don't. And everything else is kind of just bullshit. Yeah. Uh, and the internship at Red Hour, which was a very different company, however, many years ago that was now. Um, it, by the it, way, for those of you out there, Red Hour uh, is Ben Stiller's company. Yeah, Ben Stiller's production company. Um, and and at the time I was there, they had just, um, they were releasing Tropic Thunder. Mm. Um, but the, the environment was very, very prototypical. It was like, read these scripts and go get these meals and don't screw up all these assignments. And if you do all that, then we're going to like you and, and take you out for a cigarette. And if not, we're going to ignore you and then you won't have an internship renewed. But yeah, I don't, it was different for me because I was really driving down the street to, you know, work at Nordstrom's after each session. And it was pre like digital, like it was pre Kindle and like iPad. This was still when you had to so, print scripts and yeah, send like your boss over the box. Exactly. You had to like organize stuff like that and like do runs. Yep. Uh, anyway, well, you you make a good point though about like just do the good do the easy stuff well like get a lunch read a script print a script bind a script if you can do those things well then you can have the cigarette with the with the boss of the company and like you know he'll put a face yeah. to a name yeah it's a, a the, there's there's also I think a sense then as there is now of like eagerness is not necessarily like like a trait that people want around they want diligence yeah. which is just like get it done. And go back to where you sat and yeah. I'll let you know. When I, and then over time, trust is developed and then a relationship can form. And that's really how it works, which I don't know. When I was an intern, I always saw as an advantage because some people would complain about the tasks and the desire to sort of like do more. And I was just a little bit like, this is the easiest. They, they want you to they want you to get a coffee and then drive down the street. And if you can do those two things, they're going to celebrate your presence. It sounds like a... <laughs> <laughs> I think a lab monkey could do the same thing I was doing, but um, at the same time, it was like it's an easy way to like you know find your first foothold in the biz. I found as a PA that just such a sense of um, you know like how you make your bed in the morning and you're like I have completed a task. I feel <laughs> good. Like being able to you know they give you an address and this was before Google Maps and like you'd have to print a map quest. They'd give you a script and a printed thing and be like, good luck. <laughs> I was just actually talking about this uh, this past weekend with some friends because uh, we were all reminiscing on the time. And and my friends were uh, from the music side and they had again similar experiences, which was the MapQuest thing. You were given extraordinary tasks to do really nominal things and a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and the instruction was very little, but that's sort of what the challenge is. And the only way to figure it out was MapQuest. Because you didn't have the technology out of the day, and everyone's back seats were littered <laughs> with like stapled like map quests. I was I was bemoaning the fact that I didn't save some of them because uh, some of them were quite simple. It was like I was working in Beverly Hills, and it was like go get lunch at the grill on the alley, and I have these wonderful memories of literally circling. <laughs> The block, like looking for this place called the grill on the alley, not realizing it was in the actual alley. Mm. And and if I had had that map quest at the time, it would literally show like you walk 200 feet. Anyway, that's funny times. Dude, I remember trying to deliver a script for the movie Click when I was working for Happy Madison. It was like eight o'clock on a Friday night. It was the last task of the day. Sony is by the airport, but like they... (laughs) 
I was looking for this address on La Tijera, and the address didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I just dropped the script at the closest <laughs> address to what the actual address was, and I was like, well, fuck it. But it's so crazy because, I, I mean, my late in life plan is to have a book that is just chapter by chapter how, like, interns and assistants somehow influenced, like, the greatest things you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Because they just happened to be standing there when someone was like, hey, will you look at this thing really quick? Uh, will you, uh- You're reminding me of a very specific scenario where David Bobert's assistant, <laughs> Nicole, was at Mark Wahlberg's house when he was reading The Lovely Bones <laughs> and was like, should I do this? <laughs> Exactly. And there's so many, I guess, friends of ours that have similar stories of like, I dropped this thing off at like JJ Abrams house. And he was like, Hey, um, what do you think about this idea? And it was like, uh, you're speaking what you're speaking about specifically. I think the memory you're thinking about is when Max Lavitt, who was a (laughs) set PA on Star Trek, went to deliver something to JJ's house. JJ showed him the intro with the Beastie Boys with Sabotage yeah. and the cop yep. was not wearing a mask in one tape yep. a take and then showed Max the other one and he was like, which one do you like? And yeah, I, exactly. I, you know, so you did get to influence culture in a very minute way. But it's, uh, funny but it's still cool as to, fuck just to have JJ be like, hey, what what is you but think? But in, in, a, in a similar way, though not the same it's the story of jimmy ivine like oh i'm gonna go to work tonight and the family i don't know if it's like thanksgiving or something the family's like what are you doing i can't believe you're leaving like on christmas or thanksgiving or wherever it was and it just happened because john lennon was going to the studio and his first experience in the studio was like sitting there watching john lennon record music it's like again i don't know if it equates to john lennon but there are those kind of like moments that give you you know drive and energy and as someone who watched Felicity, J.J. Abrams' first show last <laughs> night, he is John Lennon. Uh, and I go, go on fucking record. And he's better than John Lennon because he didn't get assassinated. And he's still with us, ruining Star Wars movies. Even though I'm not a Star Wars fan and I don't give a shit, I think he does no, a great job. No, I, I think, you know, the Star Wars universe is something I have a great deal of respect for, but don't really watch. Yeah. It's it's not, I don't think it's so for So you're not me. watching like Andor and... No, no, actually, well, Andor I did watch, specifically because as a nerd within the the, the business of Hollywood. Like I know who those writers are and that gets me excited. Are you a Diego to, to Luna head? I, and I am a huge Diego Luna head. I love Diego Luna. I've had, mama the, I've had the privilege of overseeing Diego and Gael's deal uh, at Amazon for a period of time. Um, and I just uh, like anyone who probably has met them. Like I fell in love with them too. Did you get to tell them like, yeah, Eat to, eat to mama, guys. No, uh, I don't think they need to hear that from me. <laughs> Definitely so. not. They're like, oh, another gringo <laughs> who was moved as a teenager. But I have done that before, um, uh, uh, just with like mostly like random. Like I ran into Kathy Bates once and just like poured my soul out to her. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, Adam Arkin I ran into one time and poured my soul out to him. But it's like, uh, if you see Adam Sandler, like you don't really, like you just want to say like, what's up Adam Sandler? You don't want to be like, oh my God, click changed my life. Yeah. He's like, really click? Not fucking (laughs) Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore. Like, yeah, I mean, I like Punch Drunk Love, but click, man. (laughs) Um, all right. So Steve, you are, uh, you're at Red Hour. Uh, how did you get your first job at Paramount Pictures, which is how I met you? Uh, so, um, I'm interning at Red Hour. Um, uh, who are you was, working for there? Uh, there were there was an executive named Kit Giordano who was there, who has since left the business, and who I revere 
and miss very much. Um, there was a, a, another executive named Steve Shin. I don't know where he is. Um, he was a CE. Uh, and then there was another executive named Mike Rosenstein who I'd actually met and kind of gotten the internship with. Um, and so I technically was working for those three specifically, but there was an assistant to Jeremy Kramer, who at the time was partnered with Stuart Kornfeld and running the company. Um, and by the way, Stuart, the greatest of rest all greats. Yeah, rest in peace. Um, uh, and Jeremy had an assistant named Alan Kamui. Kamui dog. Okay. Kamui, who, who I love to death and and uh, I just had like a good thing with and I had like covered the desk of Jeremy Kramer while Kamui was being promoted to uh, take a CE job at Paramount Pictures. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to get this job. Like, I'm going to take all this time off of work and I'm going to gun for this desk and like, I'm going to get this job. And of course, by the end of it, they think they're both laughing at me like, we would never like hire the intern to do this job. <laughs> but, but I tried really hard and uh, Kamui went on to be a CE and I just kind of remained an intern in the office and he called me some weeks or months later and basically said, you know, myself and this other executive, Annie Lax, um, uh, who was another new CE at the time, um, they were looking for an assistant and Kamui was just like, you know, you did a good job. And, and I remember saying to him like, oh, I don't know if I should take this job because I'm a writer. And uh, he was like, what, if, <laughs> what have you written? And I kind of had this like realization I hadn't really written anything since I was in college. And I was kind of like, maybe I'm not a writer then uh, if I'm not actually like writing anything. And uh, he was like, you should come do this job. I think it'd be really good for you. And, you know, I went in and had a fun interview with the two of them and ran into like Adam Goodman, like during that interview, which was hilarious at the time. Um, and that's how I started working there. Um, it was really just because internship, the work assistant, Kamui getting promoted, the timing of it all. And next thing you know, I was working at Paramount Pictures and had no clue what I was doing in any way, shape, or form. Um, but, yeah. Well, you seem to have a good foothold uh, in it. Uh, I want you to tell me from your perspective of the day we met, uh, because you've heard me tell the uh, how we met, but I'm curious if yeah, what your recollection um, of it is. It's, it's kind of merged. I think there's probably a few stories that have maybe merged into like one day. Yeah. Um, uh, the first, I think, moment or memory was noticing you like, oh, there's a new person working for this other person who I don't work with in this other building. Um, but everyone used the same copy machine. Mm. And what I did notice oh, along no, with, along with Jordan Weiss was that uh, we noticed that there were a lot of scripts printed out of the same script. And we realized that it was the name on the, the script was the new dude was, and I was very new too. So it's not like, yeah, like no. um, uh, uh, it was the new guy. And we both found it hilarious that you had like left your scripts out in the copy room and like many of them. And <laughs> we couldn't tell if it was like an obvious ploy or just like a really stupid thing in it's conjunction. Stupid. It was stupidity. I didn't think there was but no. It was, it was very funny because it was kind of my first introduction to you. Um, and then the kind of second introduction though there were probably some shorter interactions in between was when um and i was not doing well at the time i was like sleeping in my car a lot i was like taking naps on the floor of the office because i was there till like 11 and i was not in a happy place in life it's a rough time in life yeah. and I, I didn't live i was new to la i didn't have a lot of friends like and so the fact that you decided to show up in my weird office uh, in in the uh, Schulberg building, 
Um, you were in Sturgis. Oh, I was excuse in me, in Sturgis, right. Um, and the Sturgis building, like the fact that you showed up alone, I was just like, what? Like nobody talks to me. And and you had sat down and just kind of poured your soul out to me about how difficult the job was and how frustrating your boss was and how kind of like messed up he was. And I hadn't had that even though the job itself was like really like messed up. Like the people weren't, but it, you just kept pouring your soul out to me to the tune where I thought you might cry. And I remember thinking to myself, cause I was in a place of just like blunt reality. I was like, just quit. It's like, just leave. That's what you told me. Who cares? Just quit, man. And you, and you looked at me as like, with such shock and almost disdain of like, I can't believe this is your solution <laughs> to my problem is to quit my job. And like, I could conceive of no other way for you to ail yourself of all these horrible crap that was going on. Um, and I think you, again, from my point of view, I think you left uh, intrigued <laughs> that, this, that this strange guy in this other building was like, yeah, man, just quit, bro. Yeah, it's whatever, dude. Like, yeah, fuck just, it. Just fucking quit it. You got a sandwich there? Just fix your sandwich. Get out of here. Like, whatever, man. Um, but those are funny times, man. It was like, it was the end of a, an era. Yeah. You know, we, we got to see the end of a, a time in Hollywood that I don't think exists anymore. What tell um, go elaborate, please? Well, it was just sort of like I think that we were working for people that were a generation or two, depending on who they were, sort of above us. And they had gone through their own upbringing in the business. And I think everyone in the business is incredibly influenced by those sort of first few people that you're around in a lot of ways, kind of unconsciously. And uh, I'm a big student in the history of Hollywood and I quite celebrate it and revere it for many reasons. And sort of knowing that those individuals had worked for individuals that yeah. were a generation or two above them and having read many stories or sort of studied the history of those individuals, you kind of saw, oh, here are some people that are living out what are kind of the last vestiges of this business that's very – um, not just glamorous, but kind of um, stately in a way um, that kind of had this this sort of opulence to it that sort of was approached with this, um, I don't know, this like, it wasn't colloquial, I guess, in a certain way. And I think the studios themselves, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, Fox. Um, Sony. Sony, to a certain degree, more Columbia, mm. had these these histories yes, to them. Yes, yes, and yes, being yes. on the Paramount lot came with history. I mean, you'd see A.C. Lyle walking around. In a three-piece suit. In a three-piece chrome suit. And, and though very fun and funny for us, it was also this thing where it was like, damn, like this dude was here when and these gates were built because and – I kind of took a lot of like, like, like pride in that. Oh, so did I. But, but they were living out this time that was in conflict with what I think we're in now, which is a much more digital and internet driven environment. They were still in this old school studio system. And so everything from the Jerry Bruckheimer, Don Simpson stories of just like crazy, like, like hustling everything from the. The, those dudes who ran Sony, like Peter. The, oh, Peter Cooper and John Peters. Yeah, like like that kind of like, like um, uh, I don't know, that kind of energy and vibe which came with all the crazy stories. Like I think that these, these individuals were sort of like 
had reached a place where they believed that that was the way it was supposed to go, but was also running in conflict with like this influx of much younger people who kind of saw, saw things and felt things a little differently. So I remember when we would go to endless parties and, and clubs and fucking strip clubs and like all sorts of shit with our bosses, like on random Tuesday (laughs) nights. And it was always very fun and funny because we would get dropped off at our houses at, or our apartments at 4 a.m. <laughs> like Trader Joe's. Yeah, but it was like like we were going home from soccer practice, right? Yeah. And we yeah. all did it together. And, and that was the nice thing of Paramount Pictures at the time was that it felt like a family. Yeah, they invited us to staff meetings. 100%. And like everyone had this very um, fun relationship with their boss. The studio was doing really well. Lots of money we were was number, getting made. We were, the studio was in number one. Yeah, and the environment that created was doors open. Yeah. You know, office doors open, executives mingling with each other, talking to each other, telling stories, the assistants participating in that, then everyone partying together on weeknights or weekends at premieres. There wasn't a lot of like, oh, you're not allowed in here. Yeah. There was a lot of like, oh, you don't like you're coming to the premiere, right? And like just be by my side and like have cigarettes or joints. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And and that environment was really great, but it's also like like there were weird, like dark qualities to it as yeah. well. Um, uh, not just in terms of how they ran the business, but just kind of like that, that, that side of it, that kind of social side of it. But at the same time, like, I think we got an education that nobody else got or nobody else gets anymore. And I think that they weren't prepared for what we're in now, the digital internet sort of reality and future. And we were all we were all welcoming it, if yeah. not purveying it because of this like generational divide and conflict. But anyway, it was a grand old time. Um, that's for sure. <laughs> it was a blast. And I remember you, uh, you started, uh, I'll let you tell it, but like you ended up working as the assistant for the president of production, which meant that you had unbridled access to, uh, uh I mean, obviously, your boss at the time, Mark Evans, even when he was EVP before his promotion, he had access to a lot of the sure, top talent. Yeah. It was friends with but you were just in JJ the room. and David Fincher. But just to be on those calls, yeah, I think yeah. you probably got an incredible education. I had a weird story because I had worked there for three months and had no idea what I was doing. In fact, this was this was actually really great. Um because I remember when the Weston Goodman um, sort of co-running of the studio with two different teams came to a head and Weston was pushed out and a lot of those executives were pushed out and it became everything under Adam. There was this very short period of time where he's like, well, let's pitch everything to Brad Gray. Literally everything in development, we're going to pitch it to Brad Gray. And everyone's going to like not do any work for two weeks. We're only going to make like sizzle reels and title treatments, like <laughs> fake movie posters. And for like, f- I don't know, it was like 250 50 projects. It was crazy. And um, everyone went through the work. They hired some company to create all these assets, right? So that they could give him the display. And the idea was that Brad Gray would come in and sort of get little five minute pitches for kind of everything top to bottom. And he'd be able to prioritize things on what he wanted the sort of next few years to be like, but also get rid of stuff that didn't feel like it was ever going to get anywhere. And um, all those materials came back and Adam and all the other executives watched them and they were like, oh my God, these are, these are not good. These, these title treatments are not good. These sizzle reels are not good. This looks really bad on us. We can't present like not good stuff to Brad Gray. And it was kind of a calamity because it was going to happen in like, I don't know, like three or four days or something like that. 
And um, somebody asked Adam in this big meeting that we were all in, like in that, it was in the conference room and all the assistants were stuffed in there too. It was crazy. And we're like, we're like what, do you, what do you like? And he was like, well, I liked the Baywatch sizzle reel and I liked like the- The Warriors. The, the Warriors, Warriors, the Warriors. I cut, I, I, What I did is I put the Warriors trailer into iMovie and I put Welcome to the Jungle as the music. <laughs> yeah. And for whatever, I wish it was because I was an editing guru. It just like cut together very well. And I remember it. Go well, ahead. But so the best ahead. part was that um, he he said those things. And I don't remember who the executive was. They were like, oh, well, who you know, those, those two clowns at the end of the table over there cut those. We asked them to cut them. And he's like, oh, my God. Get those two clowns, take them out of their jobs, put them in an office next to my office. <laughs> and for like the next 96 hours, they're going to live in there and they're going to cut like 200 sizzle reels and we're going to feed them pizza and beer and like <laughs> and, cigarettes. And, and, and cigarettes. And I remember like we sh I showed up the next day with my computer. I was like all ready to cut with the hard drives and everything. And it was you. And that's how I met your brother, Jonathan. And the three of us just sat like back to back computer. And for literally 96 hours straight, executives would just come in and give notes on their projects for their sizzle reels mm -hmm. or their title treatments. And we just cut, 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 cut. And you guys were shooting like a footloose EPK, <laughs> like, like unauthorized <laughs> too. And like, like getting the director. Can like, I tell you <laughs> incredible an incredible button to that story? My brother ran into Chase Crawford, who was in the first iteration <laughs> yeah. of footloose with, with pre, Kenny Ortega. Kenny Warmold. Chase uh, looks at my brother and goes, you look really familiar. And my brother goes, Footloose EPK, Kenny Ortega. <laughs> this was like three weeks ago at the San Vicente Bungalows. Chase Crawford's head nearly exploded. Because <laughs> that was like when you guys, like, you didn't even get permission to do it or something. And like the director, anyway, it was a whole crazy Yeah. Time. But I met Mark Evans in that. He was the EVP at the time. Essentially, he enjoyed uh, the the cut of our jib. And, and um, that we always had cigarettes. And we always had cigarettes. And, uh, you know, we just struck up a rapport with him. He was a very cool guy. And when his assistant went out on, like, back surgery or something for, like, eight weeks or some crazy thing, he was like, why don't you come work my desk? And I said, sure. Um, and the caveat was that I had to work Kamui and Lax's <laughs> desk and work Mark's desk, which I was, like, ready for the challenge because you are at that age. And, um, I did that. And then I just remember thinking, I'm never going back to that other building. I'm in the admin building. I'm down the street or down the uh, hall from the, from the president and the CEO. And Mark was really great. And, uh, I was like, I'm never going back. And like a few months went by and his assistant never came back. And then he was like, well, I'm gonna start looking for a new assistant. And I just was like, well, then I'm just going to quit. Cause I'm not going back to that, that other building. Like I'm staying here. Yeah, now that you've seen the, what, what, how it yeah, is with the king. Exactly. And, and then he, uh, over a short period of time, he was like, fine, sure. You can have this job. And that's when all these doors started to open up and it was just very simple. It was like, you just sit in the staff meeting and just absorb, you just go to this meeting and absorb. And, you know, then he got a second assistant. So I was able to sort of offload a lot of admin work, uh, probably in an egregious fashion, but one one that made my job really kind of the best job I've ever had, which was just following the president of production around all day, every day. I remember because I'd be down the hall and you would hear him coming. You'd hear Marco, Prince! <laughs> just to make sure you were there in the office yep. ready to roll calls. Um, but yeah, and then that was a couple years of just like amazing um, education and experience, you know, just like watching them make deals, watching them choose a slate, watching all the politics play out, um, and really also kind of losing my passion for the movie business <laughs> day by day mm -hmm. um, because the movies they were making were just nothing but kind of like regurgitated franchises with no heart to There them. was some good, we did get a True Grit, we got 
to go to see True well, Grit. No, that 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 True Grit, Nebraska flights, like these character-driven movies that were sort of of our childhood, like when they would make the forty million dollar drama in the nineties, or even less than that. But like up in the air came out, too. Yeah. yeah, like you would make a character drama, and it could be a financial success. Yeah. And uh, they made they, that, that was dwindling, obviously. And I had essentially been going home and bathing in television because I had been making all the interns use the corporate credit card to buy me box sets of <laughs> The Wire and <laughs> like six feet under. And so I'd gotten this extraordinary education in television just by obsessing over it and kind of had the same epiphany that I think many people had in like 2010, 11, 12, which was like right before House of Cards. Well, it it was this thing where it was like, okay, television has had this extraordinary evolution because when HBO came out, it does The Sopranos and Sex and the City and everyone's like, oh my God, it's not TV, it's HBO, which yeah. is the greatest like advertising tagline of all time. I also think it's fucking nuts, by the way, that HBO Max, it's taking away HBO, which is a world-recognized brand for quality. And then like, what the fuck is it's, Max? It's, it's a sad conflict between two ideologies. And the one ideology is be safe and be broad and all accessible because outside of LA and New York, there are many people that don't really give a shit about for the variables that we think about, whether it's creatively, artistically or emotionally, they're just there because they just want some fucking cool entertainment and content. Like they need to put it on in the background or with their kids or whatever it is. It's just a different ideology about what the existence of this content is for. And then there's a whole other side of the coin, which is like, no, it's here to actually do something. When it does something, it becomes amazing things, whether it's star Wars, the great American myth, or whether it's a, a freaking Napoleon dynamite or moonlight, you know? Um, anyway, that that's kind of where where that's going. But 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 we were sort of in that same thing where movie studios were essentially saying, you know what, international makes more money, domestic only gets us so far. We have a corporate mandate. The only things that's creating guarantees are these things, and it's just it's like an AI teaching itself a stupid lesson as opposed to what we're in now. And they kind of just buried themselves. They didn't acknowledge what the future looked like. They made very little attempt to to sort of create something for the future. Paramount Insurge was the one sort of swing at it, and even that couldn't figure itself out, even though the original concept for it was genuinely a step ahead of where everyone else was going. But anyway, you know, I just kind of got to a place there where despite how amazing the job was and how awesome the kind of environment was – Television was more inspiring. And you had been there. You know, you after a year, you know, most of these jobs, they have about a year or two tops if you're working for the top of the top of the top. Yeah. Where it's like they expect, like, okay, you're going to do a year or two on my desk and learn everybody and, and have a relationship, yeah. and then you're going to leave. Well, and, and well, for me, they it was going to be a CE job. Like, it was going to be, you're going to be the next CE. The way Allison got yeah. promoted off Adam's desk to be a CE and grew, I was like, okay, I want to follow that path. But I just kind of watched how they treated all the CEs, which was, again, a vestige of an yeah. older time. The kind of like severe beating that all of those junior executives would take. And it was all for like nothing because I sat in the office where I saw what work actually equated to business. And you would see that like all of the work that the CEs were doing, 75% of it was bullshit. None of it was really usable. They didn't even read it half the time. And then they were like living in their offices seven nights a week. They had eight bosses, all of them. It was just like. 
it's just kind of stupid yeah. and and it made no sense. And that's like, again, that was a vestige of another time. And I wanted nothing to do with that because I was like, you're just going to work yourself into a hole. And then you're going to wake up one day 30 and be like, I thought, I thought I was, uh, thought I was supposed to like do my job really well. And then someone would come by and get your promotion. It's like, no, it's Hollywood. Like you either fucking provide or you don't. And they were creating this environment where the provision was kind of like, bullshit and so i just didn't want to participate in that game even though i maybe could have carved out a privileged position for myself because of the relationship with the president of production it just didn't seem like it was an inspiring place to do anything and the only thing that was inspiring me was like getting home as soon as possible to watch the next episode of of six feet under right or getting back to my apartment to like finish like this season of breaking bad or whatever but we were in this trajectory where like hbo begat f you know and fx begat a lot like that was the foundation of something so much bigger and they all started kind of playing off each other until amc came along and then begat an entire future that i mean when you're watching that and you're going to work every day going to the movies and you're seeing these like dog shit franchises you're sort of like Where's the inspiration going to take you? Of course, it's going to take you to television. There was a there was a Sunday night lineup like when we were assistants where it was like True Blood, uh, <laughs> Mad Men, Breaking Bad, yeah. Californication on yeah. one night. Dude, and yeah, just the, exactly. We could go on for hours about the number of amazing shows that were and it just led to the streaming service. Right. And I had had this like privileged sort of like awareness of like what was going on at these places just from having been in the room outside the room with presidents of production, et cetera, et cetera. And I just used relationships and connections to just meet the people at these streaming services. I remember at one point I almost went to work for a company called break media, which was doing like, um, like short form digital content as proof of concept for larger low budget feature for high concept, low budget feature. And I was like, that's gonna be my future. I'm going to go take that job. And because you just knew that this distribution model of the internet was going to obliterate everything. And the fact that no one was talking about it in 2011 made you just feel like either I'm crazy or these people are missing something. And so, you know, it eventually led me to conversations at Netflix in the very early days and Amazon in the very early days. And through a lot of weird assessments and life and timing, I just decided to leave Paramount and take this pretty low level job as employee number seven or six (laughs) at freaking Amazon studios. And I remember everyone at Paramount being like, what? Like, you're going to work at Amazon? Like, you're leaving the business? And I was like, no. Like, we're going to, like, make shows and put them on the internet. And they were just like, what the fuck are you talking about? And this was back when Amazon was still, their pilot process was they would let the fans choose what pilots they <laughs> this were was, I mean this was actually before they had even released any content but the oh, first wow. but the first waves of content were that yeah. we're going to put some pilots up we're going to tell people it's a voting system even though there is no place to vote and we're just going to collect the data <laughs> That's so and Amazon. use that <laughs> I remember they're being like oh yeah come to Amazon and vote for your thing and it's like there's no box to check vote you just watched it and just by watching it that was your vote uh, which is which is uh, I guess a microcosm of all the 
the problems that exist today. Um, but uh, at the same time, yeah, it was this crazy, crazy model of like, let's make pilots and then let the audience like vote on them. And it was like, let's write scripts and let the audience develop them. And the executives that were there, um, uh, you know, Kristen Zollner and Sarah Babineau and, and even Joe Lewis, like we all knew this was not going to last, but we had to go through the process of, you know, of the Amazonian sort of algorithmic system of decision making. Yeah. And, you know, eventually it was, you know, tossed aside because obviously it doesn't work. Um, but it was all a weird time where people were like, you know, House of Cards was coming out, you know, True Detective was even right, coming out. Right. It was this massive kind of transition where huge stars and huge filmmakers were willing to do large scale television. And, you know, I'd slid in months, maybe a year before that had kind of kicked off. So that year, which was a really dark and painful year, like most people were like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And I don't know. I just remembered thinking it's very simple. Like if we make premium quality content and distribute it on the internet as opposed to in the broadcast or theatrical fashion, like, duh, the motherfucking internet is billions of humans. Like I remember very early on in the process, we were trying to do a pilot once and we were trying to get like Jude Law or something. And uh, one of his reps said, oh, well, Jude's not going to engage in this because, you know, how the, the show is going to be marketed because, you know, it's going to be on the Internet and he's going to be on the Internet. And he's like, you know, and I just remember thinking, like, this is so dumb. Like, someone's not going to see a billboard. It's like, yo, you can have a billion people, like, looking at your face on a daily basis. You know what the Amazon homepage does traffic-wise? Like, come on. Um, but it was early days. People didn't really understand it. And, you know, it's just a weird time. At this time, um, I go to work at Revenge as a showrunner's assistant. You are at Amazon in a very, uh, I don't know if you call it uh, coincidence or destiny or fate, but you ended up working at Amazon. And then in 2017, I ended up selling Fairfax to Amazon. <laughs> um, Was it 2017? We pitched it in August of 2017. Deal closed 2018, I believe. Long story short, I took a lot of pride in the fact that both you and I, who had come from that <laughs> first moment where I cried into a sandwich in your office, <laughs> where you were now an executive at Amazon, and I was now a TV co-creator at Amazon. Um, yeah, it was it was fun, man. I mean, I don't know. I guess like that's what you hope for when you're an assistant, is that you'll get to a place where you can just make cool shit with your friends. Um, and I think that's kind of what it is everywhere is just wanting to make cool shit with your friends. I would say most successful creative operations, whether they're production companies or groups of talent that just work together often, like it's just the same concept. It's just, I want to make cool shit with my friends and I want to get paid a lot of money to do it. Mm -hmm. like, again, Adam Sandler, look at Adam Sandler's company. That, all of the movies, all of the people around, it's very transparently, we're all friends and family. We all love being around each other and we all love making each other laugh. And these things that we do do that. And you pay us ungodly amounts of money to do it. Like, and we're going to do it in Hawaii. We're going to do four it Hawaii. Seasons. It's like, why not? And, and, and honestly, like, I revere it yeah. because I want our future one day to be whatever the next step is making more cool shit with your friends and getting paid really well to do it. 
Steve, um, so you transitioned from Amazon executive to producer with a deal at Amazon uh, in what was that? 20... 2021. Okay, 2021. Um, is there anything you can speak to uh, sort of, and, and I'm going to get us to where we are currently today with the writer's <laughs> strike and, and what your POV is as a studio executive, but sure. do you think there is a a difference in the way people view you as, oh, Steve Prince, Amazon executive, and now Steve Prince, yeah, producer? Totally. Um, and it all has to do with money. That's it. It's, it's pretty simple. Like as an executive, you are, you, your job is different. Your job is to, um, predominantly receive at all times. So that's from creatives or agents or managers or, or any, anything else. And you have the, you know, expectation or authority to say yes and no to things. And so thus, you're a gatekeeper for not just people's creative opportunities, but for money. Yeah. And because of that, you're going to get approached in a certain way. And I think that creates a spectrum of executive, those that are kind of there to be an executive that like the life and the lifestyle and, and the, the corporate job of it all, the nine to five of it all, and do their job in that way. And then there are other executives that are kind of like – producers who are executives, um, which I, I guess I, I was, or at least behaved as, yeah. uh, both personality and, and again, just evolution and timing. Um, but, uh, there are those executives that are like, no, I'm here to make something like I'm here to do something. I'm here to like create this thing yeah. and fight these fights. And I think that somewhere along that spectrum, I'm not saying anyone is, is sort of good or bad. Um, you create this identity for yourself and within the environment, you get treated a certain way. You know, you get a certain class of project if you can create a certain relationship, whether that's because of trust or labor, et cetera, right? You get a certain um, – I don't know. You get a certain level of like credence to like what your creative point of view is. Um, if you know, you swing one way or the other. And a lot of that is you having authority and having some level of power modicum given the hierarchy of the corporation. Um, but enough to sort of create an environment where a lot of things are coming at you. Obviously when you go to be a producer, it changes dramatically because now you're singing for your supper. And even if you have a deal or brand reputation or whatever it may be, you still got to sing for your supper in some way, shape or form. And you're no longer someone that can create money for people just by, you know, working at the company. You have to be able to create money for people because the work is that fucking good. Um, because the project is that fucking good because your intuition is that fucking good, right? Because your relationships, like all the things that you can kind of sort of skirt around, evade or, or, or kind of fake, like as an executive, um, you can't do it as a producer. You have to, you have to be that person. You have to be that good. You have to have that instinct. You have to know that answer and you have to be able to get that person or that institution to do that thing. You always have to be there. And I think that there you get treated differently because there's just a value structure to that, whether it's like you have enough experience to accomplish it. And so someone treats you that way or whether for me, I'm in my first couple of years, like though I've done a lot, I'm still finding foothold, you know, I'm still creating stuff so that other people will go, Oh, he made that. Oh, if he made that, then he can make this and that. And so it's a different value structure and you know, people treat you differently because of that. Talk, speaking of labor and making something, um, I want to talk to you about making Swarm because uh, 
it's a wonderful show. It has huge talent attached. It was probably a massive undertaking. Um, I'm sure you did some of it during COVID, correct? Uh, yeah, like, I don't know when we call COVID, but sure, yes. You know, like March 2020 <laughs> through... No, we were, we were shooting, um, we were shooting in 22. Oh, right, right, yeah. right, 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 so right, right. we still had COVID protocols, but it wasn't like the insanity of early COVID. Was, was Swarm a project <clears throat> that you had developed, uh, when you were on the, uh, on the studio side? Um, I mean, in the sense that I, I was the executive overseeing the project. And at the time I had had the kind of blessing of overseeing the deal that had sort of presented the project, which was Donald's deal. Um, and that was, you know, uh, um, probably the most fun and kind of privileged environment I could be in. Um, uh, and then in transitioning part of the kind of labor that needs to be applied to multiple shows that he was making kind of created an opportunity for me to come in and be a producer as opposed to an executive or as an executive, you're, you know, helping close deals. You're sort of coordinating with what the staffing can be and you're creating the environment for the artists to do their thing and sort of managing it. The producer, you're kind of, you know, living it on that day-to-day basis and needing to sort of not only sort of like ensure that it's happening, but kind of manage it like, you know, in a more diligent fashion. But the whole point being, um, that was, um, an idea that, that Donald and Janine had pitched that everyone had really loved, um, had found to be left of center and a little challenging and had created an environment for them to kind of do their thing. Um, and when I sort of transitioned to being a producer, I was kind of welcomed into the group to help with the actual production of the project. The development on a project like that's very different from, from a different project because you have auteur sensibility. You have a group of artists that are not going to sort of sit in an environment and kind of have a a quid pro quo with the corporation. They're obviously going to field notes and points of view, but they have a vision for what they're going to execute, and it's very difficult to execute that vision. So for me, what I was there to do was help them essentially execute the specificity that went into all those choices because, you know, the show is a very kind of uniquely authored show. How do you, how did you get your, I mean, like, obviously you said you talk about building trust and labor, like how do you build your, how do you become indispensable so that when Donald Glover is making a show, he says, yes, Prince, we would like you to produce that. Or his, his, his company says like, how do, how do you, how do you. Yeah, it's just it's just it's labor and relationships It's doing good work so that people can trust your work. Um, it really is as simple as that. And, you know, uh, for me specifically, it just, I just I had done good work for people in and around the environment that he's created. Um, and I had done good work in sort of managing the environment that he was building. And so trust was just born by but just doing that work. And then the labor side of it, you know, it's just like you show up and have the right point of view and and work well with others and you create that kind of trust and i think that over time there were just enough people and and enough situations for there to be like yeah like we trust this person to come in and do this thing for us given that you had you know i i find you may have been in the middle and if i'm wrong please tell me but like you came from Amazon, so you exactly know like corporate politics what's going on over there but you're also now sort of playing for Donald's team because you are producing that show. And so you need to, like you said, help him execute his vision. Did that lead you to any tricky spots where you're in a rock and a hard place where you're like, 
I think, uh, I mean, uh, not necessarily on that show, but on other shows that, that can kind of happen. Um, you know, on that show, there was, a, uh, an environment, we created an environment for these artists to be protected and do something that people, you know, don't normally do. Um, and Amazon gave a certain amount of credence and we sort of tried to run with that the rest of the way. Um, but oftentimes as the producer, you find yourself in this place where, especially at Amazon for me, there's kind of a hope or an expectation that you, me, Steven can help us Amazon with a difficult situation. And that same expectation is on the artist side and you just have to navigate that. And, and I think that all shows create that conflict, that weird straddle between like, well, how do you protect the art, but how do you also service the corporation and how do you not let that kind of destroy the vision? Um, at the end of the day, it, the producer side, it's really easy because I shouldn't say it's really easy, but at least for me, it was just more like just be bullheaded about it and just fight for what's best for the content. Even going back to when I was an intern, there's kind of like a philosophy at the core, which is just sort of like just worship the quality of the content, just worship the quality of whatever it is. Everything else is erroneous in comparison to the quality of the product, the quality of the, of the piece. And so if that's your North star, that will kind of guide you through any decision and any sort of battle, whether it's like with the network or whether it's sort of with the production is whatever is going to be best for the quality of the thing you're making that is the priority. That is the point of view. That is like the sort of road you travel. There are oftentimes when whatever is best for the thing can't happen because of whatever situation may be there. You got to figure it out. You got to figure out how to make sure whatever decision is made here, whether it's financial, whether it's creative, whether it's timing, whether it's logistics, you have to make sure that whatever decision is made, it is the best or best possible decision for the quality of the show. How do you like, for example, was there ever a scenario where you had to, again, without divulging too much, you know, say, Hey Donald, I know you really wanted X, but we don't have the money or like, we can't do this cause we're not going to make a day. Or like, was there ever a point where you had to? No, mostly because a, like, you know, for Donald and Janine and for those artists, like they know what they want, they know what they're going to get. And there wasn't a ton of financial conflict around the show. Cause we weren't doing anything like, like drastic or complicated yeah. Two, Donald doesn't need me to do anything. Uh, he, he's very, he's very capable of getting anything that he wants done. But also it was just an environment that was just a normal production in which you're trying to do something that people haven't done before. Yeah. And you're trying to do something that's really kind of unique and scary. And you really just need to protect an environment for people to do that. And so whether that requires like, oh, we're going to go over, it's not really sort of a fight necessarily with the corporation or the management. It's really more just working with the line producer and being like, how are we going to make this okay? Yeah. You know, because we do need two extra hours here because we do need to get this shot because this reaction does need to happen and it's key. And we can all debate whether that's true or not, but it, we got to get it done. And so um, we didn't really have a lot of conflict there. But on other television shows, like the show that I produced called Them, 
was very different. You know, it was this very frustrating kind of like, here's the line and we're not going to engage in creative conversations about what's best for the show. Here's the line, get it done. And so in that situation, it was very different from Swarm, right? In which you are battling a lot of different, just kind of like environments, you know, you're trying to shoot an, 90s LA show in Atlanta even though you shot season one in LA you're like you know you're working with like a studio operation that hasn't really sort of engaged in the the content itself but is there to sort of do a lot of management you're doing a lot of complex things a lot of difficult environments and with very little resource and anytime you try and scratch for more at least in this particular show it was just a flat no and so you just have to accept that box and figure it out were you ever intimidated ever and I know you're not a person who gets intimidated but like you are dealing with Donald Glover, who is a fucking genius. And I don't take that lightly. It's like music, TV, acting, stand-up, writing. It's like the the man can do no wrong. (laughs) Did you ever, and I find you to be one of the most intelligent people I know in the industry. Did you ever find yourself like, like having imposter syndrome, you know, uh, or ever feeling. I mean, I have imposter syndrome every day, but it's like, it's not like I'm like hanging out with a dude on like a daily basis. No, I know, but you know, you're on his level. No, it's just really a situation where, I mean, whether it's him or anyone else, I mean, we're going with Wong Kar Wai and we're going with Ari Aster and we're going with all these people. It's like, you just have to go into the room and like, know that like you're educated enough to have whatever conversation is going to be had. You're experienced enough to have a point of view on what that can or should be. And you're here to work really hard to make sure that their vision gets realized. And so whether it's one or the other, I think it's all the same. Um, it's just being able to go in and and just look people in the eye and treat them like humans. Like, you know, the funny thing with, with some of these artists that I worship just like anyone else, um, it's that they're, they're – uh, I don't know. It sounds really weird, but it's like, they're just like you. They're just people. They're just trying to make their thing and they have a vision and they want to get it done. And as long as you participate in that and you don't ask for anything more, you can honestly be welcomed into a lot of places. Cause the one thing about all of these wonderful artists that I just mentioned is like, I'm not trying to be their friend, you know, like I'm not trying to like hang out with them on like Sundays. I mean, I'm I'd sure lo- there, I'm sure there's I'd probably a bunch. To, and no, I, I think do, it's a great point like, because I think a yeah. lot of producers do want to be Donald Glover's best friend. You do want to hang out with Ari Aster and like yeah. that may be good for your clout score or whatever, but like sure. they don't want that. And that's not going to make the best. Well, project. and those artists are really enamoring. You, I mean, you can go take artistry all the way back as far as time. People want to be around artists. You know, they, there's a vibe, there's a point of view, there's an engagement, there's a feeling and you want that feeling to never go away. I mean, all my greatest feelings that I've ever had in the business have been around the creators doing their creation, hearing them come up with an idea and being like, oh my God, that's fucking genius. And we're going to do it. Holy shit. Those are the greatest moments. And so I think you do want to be around these people all the time, but I think it's just about do your job. You know, that's it. The thing that was really great about Swarm was there's no ego on that. It's like, check your ego at the door. Like you either come and contribute or you don't like most of at least the artists that I've worked with that I revere. It's very simple. It's like show up, do your job really well. Everything else sort of is what it now is. That we've, now that we've gotten sort of the <laughs> foundation of Steve, what I want to ask you about with our, you know, our last 10, 15 minutes here is uh, we are currently in the middle of a writer strike. Yeah. You come from a studio side, but you were almost a writer. You do. You have helped me on <laughs> multiple, multiple projects, reading drafts, uh, giving me notes, et cetera. So you're not really the enemy, but you think 
you know, you you've slept with the enemy, so you know the enemy no, thinks. No, I've I've been on what what I say both sides of the table. Yes. You go into pitch a project, or you get on a Zoom. There's two sides. Yep. <laughs> there's the people you're talking to, and then there's the people that are doing the talking. And and I I've been on. I guess now I've been on both sides. Um, I spent, you know, 10 years on one side and now I've spent like two years on the other side. But yes, I've been on both sides of the table, um, which is fun. And this is an incredibly complex issue, but like, how do you think we got here? What do you think if you have any clues like the solve just sort of what's your general take on where we are as a town right now where there's literally writers picking the street SAG is voting for strike authorization and and we're hoping DGA does too, which I don't know <laughs> yeah. if that'll happen, but yeah. just sort of curious for the Steve Prince. Uh, I know it's, it's, it's obviously a very complex issue. Um, I, I don't think it can be reduced down too much, but um, I think the environment we're in is a byproduct of something that has been going on for a long time. And um, I think that I feel like I've seen the 10 years that have sort of led to this. Um, you know, the the streaming service, the Internet, its invasion into the distribution model of all of this art – uh, movies, television, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's pretty massive. It's it's obviously quite seismic. In the 10 years that that's been going, 10-ish years that that's kind of been going on, I think that there hasn't been a lot of like um, forward planning. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of like uh, uh, vision on the horizon when it comes for things like labor, um, uh, uh, like legal. Um, sometimes you need to, to sort of wander into those walls in order to find them like any giant institution. Um, but I think that this is just a byproduct of, a, of, of a long time. I think that there's like two sides to it. There's like a financial side and there's a creative side. Um, I, I think, you know, on the, on both sides, the bubble of streaming television obviously burst and, and coincided with a pretty large economic kind of um, dent. Yeah. And I think that that created a lot of what's going on right now. Um, should the streaming services have been making the number of television shows? Like, I don't know. Should they have been spending the amount of money on those writers? I don't know. What I know is that it was an arms race. And that nothing was going to change that arms race. I want to believe that someone could have been Zen and brought the powers that be to some dinner in Beverly Hills where the, the Sarandoses and Salkies and, and the Igers and, and the Bay, yeah, yeah. that everyone could actually get together and have this eloquent conversation about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how it's going to affect people and what we should do to safeguard certain things or make sure that certain kinds of shows are not going to get pushed to the side or whatever it may be. But it's unrealistic for me to believe that that conversation could ever happen or would ever happen. Um, but without a conversation like that in whatever fashion, you got the arms race in which everyone was trying to outspend and outdo each other because what is sadly, I think, become more important is the brand and the consumer product that each of these things sort of is to the corporation um, rather than the quality of it. I think if you look back in history, most data points will show you that the quality of the product itself is correlated directly to its success. And I think the streaming service in those 10 years, I sort of watched how quality 
um, isn't a metric, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, I, I shouldn't say it isn't a metric. It has it has been strategically chosen to not be a metric in a lot of decision making because the sales of the product on the internet sort of reduces it down to just being a brand. Um, and most people know and understand this has been going on since, you know, Mary Pickford and Clark Gable, but it's now just got to this place where the internet and the sort of, um, data driven decision-making, all of these things, um, have kind of like poisoned the, the consciousness and the evolution of like the art form a little bit. And they think it's just now in a place where it's, it's just gotten too much. And that's why the bubble burst. That's why the economic dent is so is felt so real. It's why the lack of preparation and vision and consciousness in what we're doing and why we're doing it and what it's supposed to do to affect people, it's all coming to roost right now, you know? And for the strike to happen, it's the writer's version of it. There, everyone is going to feel it a different way. Producers feel it a different way. Artists feel it a different way. Executives feel it different. Everyone is feeling. Yeah, even their the own representatives. Version. Even the representatives. Everyone is feeling it a different way. The strike is what the writers have to do to fight back on how they're feeling it, right? Because no one was saying, "Hmm, let's uh, let's give them more money." Oh, we're going to be making content in a different way. Mm, pay them more money, not pay them more money. I think I'm going to go with not pay them more money until we're forced to. And that's just kind of where we're at. Like, I think it's just sad, not because it's going to like be protracted. It's going to get resolved. Yeah. It's sad because it could have been prevented, you know, and it's sad because it's not helping this larger problem which is that everything we create now is reduced down to being a consumer product. And that's not good for humans, you know? Like, content is a shitty word because what you're talking about is predominantly art, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, content doesn't have to be a shitty word if it can be approached with some level of, of like – artistic credence that gives quality metric value, right? Uh, I, I'm sure it won't last. It, it can't. It's unsustainable. There are too many terrible television shows and too many like unseen movies going on um, for it to sustain. But until like the quality can become a, like an intangible metric value, until it can hold that thing that whether it was pre-internet where a studio head would be like, I don't get it but I like it and I think people are going to talk about it. That could be an explosive, massive generation defining franchise from that simple instinct, that simple risk. You're reminding me of when Robert Evans read Chinatown and was like, Bob town. I don't, I understand a fucking word of this, but uh, you are a real smart guy and I'm just going to trust you. And I'm going to trust that this, that's is, how you get this is genius. And, and look, um, those things aren't consumer products when you make them. Look at Citadel. It is, is very sort of obviously a reverse engineered consumer product, right? Um, and cool, all good. Like people should do that. Like create that type of business, fine. But like at what point does quality sort of become a metric or not? And who's the arbitrator of that? And why can't the arbitrator of that be held to a higher standard? You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's lofty and ridiculous and ideal, but it's like 
you're choosing the things that billions of human beings see that influence how they shape and think and talk about their lives. That's kind of a big deal. Like, like, sure, in certain cases, it's not that big a deal, right? But in the aggregate of it all, it is a big deal. And the people that are chosen for those professions, executive, junior, mid-senior, department head, division head, studio head, network head, corporate head, when it comes to all of these positions that genuinely select what human beings see, Right. I just feel like we got to hold it to a higher standard. We got to we got to hold it to a higher responsibility. Why shouldn't an executive have some intense education in the history of Hollywood? Why shouldn't an executive be held to the standard of knowing film and television history and like how a piece of content influenced a community or how the community influenced the content and what that said, what that discourse meant about where that country was in that place and time or where that society was in that place and time. Like, why isn't that education a requirement? Why isn't that part of the larger conversation. And I know why, because we live in a capitalist country and these places are about making money. I'm talking bullshit over here. But 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 it is this thing that has diminishing returns and the strike and everything related to the strike and the bubble bursting. This is all a byproduct of not having that consciousness and not having that conversation, in my very humble opinion. Do you think there is a, first of all, let me, before I even ask that, do you think this is going to come to a head shortly or this is going to be a while? I don't know. I mean, uh, it's weird because, like, I just kind of spend my day, like, just trying to find every little task I can to move every project forward, um, which is obviously very difficult right now. And yet I, I don't find it to be any different <laughs> than the rest of my days prior to this where it's, like, really hard. But but it's, it's something that feels only protracted if um, – these larger conversations aren't going to be had. Like, I don't know. I, I see what's in the press and I don't believe any of it. I find it all to be bluster. What's going on between the, the studios and networks and the guild is the same thing that's going on um, about the budget in, in DC right now. All that I'm hearing in the press, I just don't believe a word of it. My like not a word of it. So will it go on for a while? Yeah. But like, it can't go on. Like, I don't know, that long. My my fear is that, you know, back in the day when we were negotiating with the AMPTP, you know, it was like nine studio heads. And they all were pretty much the same business model. You know, they released a different amount of movies by three plus or minus three or four. Now you have Amazon, Apple, also along with Sony Columbia, Universal, WB, or Warner Brothers Discovery. Their, their goals are much different. So how do you align all of these people in agreement where, you know, Apple makes money selling iPhones, not from Apple TV. Amazon makes most of its money selling toilet paper. Prime video is a sunk cost. So what do they have, what do they have in common with NBC, the C the central broadcasting (sighs) service and Fox, you know, like, um, it's, it's honestly, it's different ways of making money. Yes. They are loss leaders for sure. Right. Um, but they still make money because you are signing up for Amazon prime subscription service at Netflix, you know, Disney's like people are still engaging these things. So it's just, it's just different ways to make money. I I think for me, it goes back to that same point, which is like, okay, 
the reason the streaming service was so exciting for me as a younger person was because it fucked with the barometer of success and failure. For a century, the barometer of success and failure was money. Your box office numbers created a pretty specific barometer and your TV ad buys created a very specific barometer. That barometer was kind of taken away because there wasn't a lot of cash profits being generated by streaming content. It was an influence tool. It was a tool to influence you to sign up for something. And Amazon is the most sort of specific example of it because – Amazon Prime Video is just part of this larger like series of kind of offerings. I used to say it back in like 2012 and 13 when I would do my generals. I'd be like, oh, uh, Amazon Prime is like a country club. And um, the uh, Amazon Prime Video service is like the theater. When people <laughs> ask like what, what, like what was it like working in Amazon or why Prime Video? And I'm like, to me, from what I saw, sure. Prime Video exists so Jeff Bezos can go to the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Uh, That's it. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jeff Bezos doesn't need Prime Video to go to the Vanity That's Fair Oscar true, party. That's very true, but he won't, well, um, you know. But, but at the same time, I think that those optics play a role because part of it's true. Who doesn't want to go to parties, right? I mean, yeah. if you spent your life like building things in a garage and being told you're a nerd and that the internet's stupid and that, you know, fuck off. And then you built the future with your bare hands. You'd probably have a different point of view on life yep. and, and Hollywood and those parties might not have been available to you, but eh, why not? Right. What it is at the end of the day is this, this larger thing. It's this larger idea of consumerism and consumer products. Right. And, Look, the 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 point for me is that um, the streaming service essentially took away this barometer of success and failure and then never put another one in there. And so it became this amorphous battleground. Or Steve, here's a here's a question, not to cut you off. They do have the data that's telling you what is the barometer, but they won't share it. No, and that's uh, look. Some of that I understand, um, but um, other parts of that is for me is it, it's just I guess my dark point of view. It's like that's the politics. That's not going to change. I don't feel like there's ever a version where Netflix is like your show. But what's interesting? No, no, that could change down the. I actually see that changing down the road. Not anytime soon, right? But I see that data being divorced from really real proprietary data. Um, and I see there being a more public barometer of success and failure. But the thing is, is that these streaming services like battling each other, the arms race, it's kind of all dumb because the barometer is quite simple. People either like your show, talk about it, and it becomes an aware conversation in your environment or it doesn't. Yeah. And the cherry picking of metrics to say certain things is like, ugh. I know that's what, that's what I hate is like, it's painful, but at the same time, that's the politics. That's why I'm like, I don't know if that'll, if that'll be around forever. Cause it's like good shows that people like and talk about are known by many, right? Yeah. Other shows that aren't in that category need to be qualified with metrics. Like it was the ship to adapt to do boop and like, Oh wow. Like, I still have never heard of it yeah. and I still don't know anyone that's seen it, but I guess good to know that it's the ship to adapt to boop boop Like the number sure. one stream, the number one streaming show this weekend. It's like cool. But how many people actually completed watching the pilot? Like, well, and also like, what does that mean? Like, I remember a time when like, you know, you'd try and figure out like, like the metric value of a first stream, right? Like, well, we have this metric here and it, this is the number of people that uh, when they signed up for the service, uh, this was the first thing they watched. And so that gives us an indicator that they signed up because of that. And it's like, 
yeah, and I'm sure there's like a probability ratio to that too. But I also sat on my controller and like turned on something, <laughs> yeah, and like all this. And and again, that's why it's like at the end of the day, it's just did people like it and talk about it? The frustrating thing is that the metrics and the hiding of the metrics and the cherry picking of the metrics is that now we've placed this unbelievable tool of power, this democratic idea of culture deciding what is important and special and should be seen. And we've given all of that power to seven individuals that are fighting a capitalistic battle for market share and people's, you know, stock prices. It's kind of like, okay, well that's capitalism. It's not uncommon, but this idea that culture doesn't get to decide like what it is that you actually can kind of manipulate, like, like what's successful and unsuccessful by how you show it and when you show it and where you show it based on your choice of metric just feels like a line is crossed. Whereas when you made a movie back in the day, it would be like, I hope this works, man. Like, uh, <laughs> we put a lot of money into this and a lot of time. Like, I really, I really hope this kicks. And like, look, it goes back to basic concepts. If it's good, tell people about it. That's yeah. the thing I also don't understand about the streaming service is like, you'll get a good show, but the quality metric isn't taken into a conversation. So it's just sort of like, well, how easy or hard can we sell the consumer product? And it's like, who cares? It's good. If people watch it, they're going to be like, it's good. And then they're going to turn to somebody and say, you should watch this thing. It's good. Yeah. Just make it good. And if it's good, show it to people. And if it's not good, don't show it to people or show it to less people. But like the fact that quality has been sort of removed from that, that barometer and this idea of it being subjective, it's like, sure, it's subjective. But that's why we hold the decision maker to a higher value and a higher standard. Because they should have the intuition. There should be the one that showed up in the theater and saw Napoleon Dynamite and was like, I know this is strange, but fuck, I laughed so hard. I got to tell someone about this. And next thing you know, $100 million, right? That has been sucked right out of the business that we're in because these tech companies, these internet streaming services have reduced it down to metrics that don't include quality. You're so smart, it's scary. Uh, what before we duck out of here, I wanted to ask as a studio guy, is there any advice you have for young writers that are pitching you that are trying to get a start? I know there's a writer strike, so it's like a weird time to talk about like, you know, do's and do nots. But like, is there if there's one or two pieces of advice you can give to writers that are of, of any level listening to this? Is there anything you want to impart as you head out the door uh, to I, get on? No, I think it's um, I think it's uh, applicable to anyone trying to, you know, choose the business of entertainment as a lifestyle or a life. Um, and I do think it's applicable to writers maybe more specifically, but it's just like it's just hustle hard. Um, it's um, as a writer. There's a lot of anxiety around how does someone get my thing seen or get it to the right person at the right time. Um, maybe I haven't lived that life as as day to day as many other writers, but I, I'm always shocked that that's a concern. I'm always shocked that there's this like fear, trepidation that I can't get my thing to the right person at the right time. Um, there are so many people vacuuming up art writers, visionaries, directors. There's so many people that are trying to make money off of it that 
it will find its way. It always will. The only thing that you can control is how good it is. And so my thing would be um, worry less about the plan for yourself, your material, your brand. That's just, you know, whoring it out like we all are, right? But I think it's more about you need to be doing the work that separates yourself from everyone else. And that's not just the hard work of writing and rewriting and learning and honing your craft. It's the hard work of going inside who you are as a person and an artist to think consciously and objectively about what you're providing, what you bring to the table creatively, what you can do that other people can't do. That is probably a more difficult journey than learning screenwriting or getting your thing to the right place at the right time is finding that thing inside yourself that you know nobody else has or can do and and working it and accentuating it and proselytizing it and believing in it and having faith in it and knowing that as different or as weird or as left of center or as as odd as it may sound or feel that it's actually who you are and that's what's going to lead you to the promised land. Steve, thank you so much for coming out to Laurel Canyon. I love you, dude. I have loved you since the moment you told me to quit working at Paramount. Uh, uh, I hope you have a wonderful week, and uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back here when the strike is over, and we'll, we'll do a recap and see where we're at. Yeah, volume two would be a blast, man. Love volume you too, man. Volume two, dude. Thanks for coming out, Steve. All right, man. More soon.